If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did the golden age of piracy begin? Were any women found on pirate ships? And did any of them take the helm? And did people really have to walk the plank? As part of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, on today's episode, Dr. Rebecca Simon takes on listener questions about the period known as the Golden Age of Piracy in the 17th and 18th centuries. Putting your questions to Rebecca was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Welcome to another episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series. You might well have already encountered an episode of this series before, but a quick reminder of the format. We take a topic, ask listeners questions, and then put those and the ones most commonly searched online to an expert. And today's topic is the golden age of piracy, and I'm really thrilled that that today's historian is Dr. Rebecca Simon, a historian of early modern piracy, colonial America, the Atlantic world and maritime history. 
She's the author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. And that's published by Mango Press and is out now. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rebecca. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So to start us off, um, perhaps we could cover off two of the top questions uh, most searched about this topic. What and when was the golden age of piracy? So the golden age of piracy was a period of time when piracy was the most active within the Atlantic world. And the Atlantic world literally encompasses everything that was along the Atlantic, primarily the Caribbean, North America, Britain, Europe, and uh, the West Coast of Africa. So the golden age of piracy was covered by three rounds. You have the 1670s and parts of the 80s, which were kind of the buccaneers of the Caribbean, mostly French uh, pirates in that area, kind of fighting over different land territories, a little bit more land-based than sea-based. Then you have the 1690s with Indian Ocean piracy, with pirates such as Henry Avery and Captain Kidd, both of whom disrupted a lot of trade between the British and Indian Mughals, which actually almost started an all-out war. But the most common age of the golden age of piracy that most people tend to think of is the time period between about 1713 to 1730-ish. And this is where we have very large organized bands of piracy. And these include all the pirates that most people have heard of. Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, Captain Hornigold. It's where you have the Pirate Kingdom at Nassau on the island of Providence in the Bahamas. So that is kind of the primary age of the golden age of piracy. Right. So lots going on there. And perhaps this is a quite a broad question given those, those three different ages. But we've got another question here. What caused this golden age of piracy? It sounds like it was quite an evolution. It was. So initially in the 1600s, we have piracy on the rise, a lot of it because of contention between ownership within the plantation colonies, the islands within the Caribbean, particularly between the British and the Spanish, who are constantly at odds between who would control different regions of the Caribbean. A particular area of contention was Jamaica, which became known as one of the most successful plantation islands in the West Indies, mostly because of sugar cultivation. So during this time period, when there's so many political issues going on, they couldn't really quite monitor criminal activity happening in the water. There were always pirates, you know, going in and after shipping lanes, trying to disrupt trade, stealing items. They'd set up a community within Jamaica, along with kind of other, what they would refer to as social degenerates at the time, criminals, sex workers, and the like. So we have a rise of piracy because there's so much fighting happening that the British and Spanish couldn't really police piracy the way they normally could. So this is kind of the uh, 1600s. Now, going into the golden age of piracy in the 18th century, the 1700s, we have a period of time. You'll notice a few minutes ago, I, there was kind of a blank in a time period from about 1700 to 1713. And this is because of an outbreak of a war called the War of Spanish Succession, much of which took place on the Atlantic Ocean. Many pirates were hired as privateers, for either the British or the Spanish. Now, a privateer is someone who basically gets a contract to attack enemy ships. Think of them as kind of like a mercenary at sea. They're paid in the loot they can steal. And then once the war ended, these privateers' contracts also ended, and many of them found themselves out of work. Many of them also very much enjoyed privateering because they got pretty good 
money from it, from the goods they would steal, kind of a modicum of freedom. You know, even though they were tied to a contract, they still kind of operated themselves. So many of them began to turn back into piracy after this, especially those who are out of work. Okay, so that that covers off another question we've got, actually, which is um, the difference between piracy and privateering. But if I can ask about the legal situation of piracy at this time, you know, how was that treated legally? So during the 18th century, the piracy was legally defined as robbery upon any body of water. This would include, of course, lake, rivers, streams, oceans, seas. And that law had actually been really solidified since the time of Henry VIII with the Offenses of the Sea Act. So and basically any person who robbed and murdered on a body of water would be considered as a pirate. And now this term in the law kind of became a bit convoluted at times because there would be pirates who would say rob a British ship but not kill anybody, but they would still be counted as pirates because the idea is if you're robbing a merchant ship, you're trying to cripple the British economy and therefore trying to kill Britain in a way. So it became quite convoluted. Those who helped pirates sometimes were counted as pirates themselves because they were complicit in it. Generally, if a person was accused as a pirate, caught and arrested, they were pretty much guaranteed to go on a show trial and then be executed for the crime of piracy. Some were pardoned for various reasons. They could prove that they had been forced into it. Sometimes they might be very, very young. And so they would be pardoned because the argument was because they're so young, they probably didn't understand the consequences. But generally, if a pirate was caught, they were pretty much guaranteed to hang. Now, if they were a privateer, this could also get quite sticky because one country's privateer was another country's pirate. So during time periods such as the War of Spanish Succession, the Spanish would capture British privateers and imprison them and want to put them on their own trial for execution, which really heightened a lot of parts of the war as Britain's like, no, they're not pirates, um, whereas Spain is saying, yes, they are pirates. So it does get quite sticky. Mm-hmm. Right. Sounds like a very precarious existence for for many of those involved. What sort of goods and routes were, were pirates targeting? You mentioned mate, there was no buried treasure, sadly. <laughs> so... Pirates were targeting lots of different areas. They were really all about major sea lanes that leading into the West Indies. So through a lot of the Bahamas, the Leeward Islands, going in towards Jamaica and a lot of different American ports. And what they were after were items that could give them wealth. And these would be really highly um, desired items. Textiles, such as silks. Textiles have, oddly enough, always been the most desired products in trading history, um, right next to spices. So they were after things like spices. They were after, um, you know, replenishing their own stores, if possible. They were after alcohol. That was huge. Rum, um, because rum, you know, people are like, oh, pirates and rum. Well, the reality is, because it was a staple as a drink on a pirate ship, but also because of the heavy sugar trade and rum, you know, being distilled from sugar was kind of the number one alcohol export from the Caribbean going into North America. So that was a very highly desired item. And wines, in particular, Madeira wine from Portugal. That was always really highly desired. Um, Pirates were often known to steal loads of wine and then end up drinking it themselves. But these were items that they wanted because they could sell it for a really good amount of money going into the different areas. And what would they do with their money? Replenish their ships, do some repairs, and then spend it on whatever they could. Right. And so they're clearly going after, you know, 
quite targeted things. And we've got a couple of questions here about how did they plot their course at sea? And also, I'm interested to know in terms of communication, um, Harness1970 on Instagram has asked, was the skull and crossbones flag a thing? How did this come to be linked with piracy? Yes, so the skull and crossbones flag is called the Jolly Roger. And um, we believe this comes from the French term Jolie Rouge, um, meaning kind of uh, rouge, meaning red, meaning that a lot of the skull and crossbones flags or the Jolly Rogers, a lot of them were actually uh, red before they became known as the black flag. Um, but then black kind of took over as the color. Um, the flags were actually quite different. Some did have a skull and crossbone. Some had a picture of kind of a devil holding a trident with um, a bloodied heart and a knife going through it. That was quite common. The flags were used a lot during the pirates in the 1720s, that particular period. So they came later. And this is because many ships, when they would kind of come across each other in the ocean, would hail each other, showing their flags, um, showing essentially where they're coming from. Pirates, what they would sometimes do is they would either not hail a ship, and so the ship would have to kind of start coming to them to see who they were in case there's some sort of like competitor or enemy ship or maybe someone in distress, or they would put up a false flag, um, you know, flag of whatever country to hail the ship. And then they'd switch it out with and put up their own Jolly Roger, signaling who they were, get ready for an attack. A moment to remember, dread. <laughs> exactly. Remember, pirates wanted to get in and out as fast as they could. And this would help the other ship prepare for battle or at least be like, ah, let's just surrender. Um, and it was to kind of signal their way. And it was a way for pirates to also signal who they were to each other, whether or not they attacked each other. I mean, some did, some didn't. Um, in terms of What's the other question? Like, yeah, where they sorry, would go, I doubled or? up there. That wasn't very helpful, was it? Um, it was how did they plot their routes at sea? Oh, yeah. So how did they plot their routes? It really just had to do with where there was a lot of trading activity, honestly. Um, and that's where they would head. You know, some pirates preferred to kind of go to certain areas. There were some, such as Jack Rackham, that mostly sailed in and around Jamaica because of a lot of the sugar trade happening there. Blackbeard kind of sailed throughout the West Indies and up and down the American coast because you know, a lot of port ships, um, or I'm sorry, a lot of port towns with lots of areas. A lot of pirates would congregate in certain areas with other sailors and pirates. They could exchange information. So honestly, it really just depended on um, what type of goods they were after, perhaps maybe a certain location they felt like being in, and where a lot of active trade was. So perhaps we could start then in this third age by talking about the the ships that we use. You've already mentioned the, the war that 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 led to these ships kind of flooding out, I suppose. <laughs> so the types of ships pirates used were generally smaller and narrower and faster than a lot of merchant ships or large British ships such as man-o'-wars, which were used in battle by the Navy, etc. So the pirate ships were often ships known as sloops, sometimes junks, which were very small ships. Pirate ships sometimes were quite large in the case of Blackbeard with Queen, the Queen Anne's Revenge, which had many, many guns. I forget the exact number. Guns are cannons, essentially. That's how a ship is really measured, by the amount of guns that they would have. So a pirate ship could have anywhere between 5 and 20 or even more. I wish I had an exact answer, but because it, it really varied on how powerful the pirate was, what kind of, if they had a fleet, if they were just kind of a one-off pirate crew. Uh, but 
The majority of pirates were kind of what I refer to as one-off pirate crews, meaning that they weren't part of a fleet. Maybe they just sailed one voyage. They would have smaller ships that were fast and could able to be able to navigate through these small islands and areas within island chains, such as the Bahamas, the Leeward Islands, and the Caribbean, or other areas. Mm-hmm. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and for for the, the, the pirates themselves... Um, You've mentioned, obviously, Spain and Britain, particularly as as these hotspots. Where were the kind of key breeding grounds, I suppose, for for um, pirates to join these little sloops and things? So they would be, for the most part, within the Caribbean is probably where the majority of pirates joined up and perhaps the Southern American colonies. Um Pretty much all, actually. And any place with a port town, you could probably find pirates. But I would say the vast majority were definitely the Southern American colonies and the Caribbean. And part of the reason is because within the Bahamas, just off the coast of Florida, um, a large chain of islands, which was a real hotbed for a lot of merchant travel because it was a really, really active area for sea trading lanes, you had the pirate community at Nassau, which is on the island of Providence, which was a very strong a pirate community, very tight-knit, only for a few years from about 1714 till I would say about 1718, 19, when Woods Rogers came in as governor and worked really hard to clean up piracy. But most of the pirates would congregate there, share news, trade goods, replenish their crew. Sometimes they went to places like Charleston, South Carolina. Sometimes they went up to Providence, Rhode Island, which had so many pirates that it became known as a receptacle for pirates, along with the city of Philadelphia. So those are a lot of primary locations. And Jamaica, of course, which had once been a stronghold of pirates in the 1600s until an earthquake sank the part of Port Royal in 1692. And that was that's kind of like a island just off the coast of Jamaica, connected by a narrow strait of land. And that is where a lot of pirates congregated in the 1600s. So kind of really various all over. Essentially, wherever a lot of sailors congregated with an active port town near uh, merchant trading lanes is where you'd find a lot of pirate recruiting. Right. Great stuff. And and you've mentioned all these diverse communities. We've had a couple of questions uh, about a code of conduct. So Guy Wilson on Instagram, and I think somebody else as well. Yeah, we had a couple of questions on this. Was there a sort of a code of conduct or a pirate's code for how these people lived in these communities? There have been reports about pirate codes. So a few sources. Um, The pirate Edward Lowe uh, had a set of what we call pirate codes or articles, which were actually published in the Boston Newsletter, um, a newspaper in North America, and along with several others. There are others very similar that were said to be attributed to other pirates, um, such as John Phillips, Bartholomew Roberts. Some were published in the book, A General History of the Pirates in 1724, which is a collection of pirate biographies. What these were was pretty much a general code of conduct and safety for pirate ships. And these included things like, you know, keeping your weapons clean and in good condition, no snapping of the weapons in the hold, you know, aka no firing any weapons in the hold where there's gunpowder stored, it could be a dangerous situation, no fighting on decks, no gambling, um, you know, don't want to cause conflicts. Some pirates, such as Ed Lowe, he wouldn't allow drinking as well um, because he wanted people to stay very alert. Um, 
The pirate codes also outlined how much compensation you might get in terms of dividing up loot. It was quite equal depending on your rank. Also, what compensation you might get for any major injury, particularly loss of limb during battle. Sometimes other parts of decorum, such as, you know, you can't bring any women on board ships, you can't um, attack any women um, if they come onto a ship. That was a bit more rare, though. But these were kind of what the codes were, was really kind of, you know, maintaining order and safety upon a ship. Yes, that makes sense. They do all sound kind of logistical, sensible things to make sure your ship is, you know, running fairly smoothly and everyone knows what's what. Um, but some people have asked about, you know, parlay and this idea of a more honourable code, like the, the code of, you know, pirate's honour. Where does that come from? Is there any truth to that or is that kind of more tied up in the myth? I'm not as familiar with the term parlay because it never actually shows up in any document about piracy. It's not in any of the pirate codes. I think that there probably was a maritime code of honor of um, where parlay meaning, you know, we want to basically it meant like, you know, we want to discuss things with the captain um, kind of peacefully, essentially. Um, In terms of it being specifically linked to pirates, it wasn't. We get that idea a lot from the Pirates of the Caribbean film, particularly the first one, where the term parlay really actually drives the film getting Elizabeth Swan onto the pirate ship peacefully because she wants to negotiate with the captain rather than being attacked and captured or kidnapped. So I think that is where we get an idea. A lot of, oh, pirates use this term as parlay um, when the reality is, I mean, it did it did exist, but it, it wasn't quite as prevalent as we think. It's more pop culture. Mm. Right, yeah. And I hope, hope we can get more into the, the detail of what uh, pop culture owes to the pirate's reputation a little bit. Um, but I wanted to ask about this notion of walking the plank. We had a question from George Samuel on Facebook who wanted to know, did, did this happen? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very sorry to say. There is one record, I believe, of um, kind of a walking the plank instance where I think someone, because someone murdered someone else on the ship, so they were thrown overboard. um, And they kind of referred to it as having them walk the plank as a slang term. But that's just one case. And I've never even encountered that particular case. I read about it, I believe, in Marcus Redeker's book, Villains of All Nations, which is a very good book. If anyone wants to read more about piracy, I'd recommend it. Um, But as far as I know, no, walking the plank is kind of a fictional idea. We've got another question here then from Guy Wilson. Thanks, Guy. And he's um, kind of follows on neatly from that. So if no one was walking the plank, how did uh, pirates treat various prisoners? And he's asked men, women, children, how were they treated differently on these ships? Uh, they generally weren't treated very well. I never came across any cases of children being kidnapped. Um, Well, there were one or two cases where families were kidnapped, but there was no description of what happened to the children. Um, I don't even know if there were children, but um, generally they were imprisoned on the ship, tied up. A lot of times they might be beaten, perhaps tortured. Women were often subject to sexual assault. Some some pirate ships where they, um, they weren't allowed to attack women, but it was a lot more common women survivors being reported that, you know, the pirates treating them very unkindly, often kind of a code for sexual assault, lots of beatings. There were some pirates such as Ned Lowe and Charles Vane who were known to maim their victims. Um, Ned Lowe actually would force his victims to eat like their own cut off lips or ears, something like that. Very, very brutal. It really depended on the pirate ship. There were some that 
weren't kept in any bad condition, um, but were forced to sail with them as a pirate. And that was generally men, young, abled, able-bodied men. But for the most part, they were held as prisoners. They could be beaten. They were not treated well. Okay, yeah, pretty brutal stuff. And and mm-hmm. I mean, is that across the board? I think we've got a question here about how did um how did land people regard pirates and piracy? That's from Julie Brummel on Instagram. Thanks, Julie. So was this was this fearsome reputation encouraged? Were these acts to kind of, you know, put out there that this is what we do and kind of watch out? It's interesting because the relationship between piracy and those on land was actually quite complicated in a lot of areas. So there were parts of the Caribbean and the Southern American colonies that did work with pirates, particularly in the 1600s. So with the competition between the British and the Spanish in particular over plantation islands, the British decided to try to cripple uh, Spain's economy, along with France's and Portugal's as well, their main competitors, by passing the Navigation Acts in the 1650s. And what this did is it banned all colonists from trading with all their competitors. So this is to cripple those countries economically. Now, the colonists didn't like this. It took away their own freedom of trade and also stopped them from being able to get a lot of goods that they really would have enjoyed. So they worked with pirates who robbed these ships at will and brought them into the colonies. Some pirates were considered to be well-respected members of the community in those areas. They would have families. Sometimes the governors or other powerful people would outright sponsor them. Now, that wasn't always the case, particularly at the turn of the 18th century, because a lot of people at that point, if they were known to trade with pirates or to help them, they themselves would be considered pirates. And so they came under a lot of the legal consequences of piracy, which really upset many people. Not all, though. When you go into the middle Atlantic colonies, such as Maryland, going into New Jersey, Delaware, New York, and then up into New England, that is where you have loads of real fear and hatred of piracy because they're so merchant-dependent for their economies. And pirates were a massive threat to merchants. And so there were many sailing communities, particularly in New England, that were in mass danger of pirates coming in and really destroying livelihoods and communities. And also there was this fear, even though you had people supporting pirates in the Caribbean and some of the Southern American colonies, you still had loads of people who were absolutely terrified of them. Pirates often knew this. There were some pirates who would deliberately let victims go to tell people, um, to have them warn people of what they were doing, um, to kind of keep this fearsome reputation going. Of course, you have the pirate Blackbeard, who deliberately made himself look as frightening as possible, the long Blackbeard putting candles in his beard for smoke to come out, looking like, described as if he was coming out of the gates of hell, essentially. And this was to intimidate victims in order to get them to surrender as fast as possible. So pirates were very aware of the reputation that they caused, and many of them did kind of capitalize on it because it gave them an advantage when attacking ships. It allowed them to be able to get their victims to surrender very fast. Pirates generally wanted to get in and out very quickly when robbing ships, and so this helped them. Yes. I mean, that's such an evocative picture of Blackbeard. You can understand why so many people are, are so fascinated with um, so many of these individuals. Uh, and we we have had quite a few questions about the most famous pirates from the age. And I know you've been mentioning a few as, as we go along, but perhaps we could um, talk about a few of the, the, the most famous figures 
Um, you mentioned Captain Kidd, and I know he's pretty close to your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Captain Kidd is interesting because he sort of changed the game with how pirates were really being dealt with. Um, he did not consider himself to be a pirate. He was hired as a privateer to hunt competing ships within the Indian Ocean as Britain's really trying to solidify its power in the Indian Ocean um, and their trading relationships with India. But then Captain Kidd, he's quite rash in his decisions. He was known to very much toe the line between privateering and piracy to the point where then, you know, the East India Company and the Indian Mughals, like no one really liked him very much. And then he ends up robbing a ship he's not supposed to that goes against his own letter of mark. That's the contract a, a privateer has. He says that he did not violate the contract because what happens is he attacks what he believes is a French ship. Turns out the ship was, um, turns out the ship belonged to France, but was an actual Armenian ship captained by a British captain. So very complicated situation. And so he attacks the ship and therefore then he has to go on the run. In the meantime, he gets into a fight with one of his crew members, strikes him and kills him. So now he's guilty of both robbery and murder on the high seas. So he, they cause like a full scale manhunt to try to capture Kid because the Indian Mughals are threatening war if they don't and cutting off all trade because five years previously in about 1695, Henry Avery was an English pirate who also robbed the Mughals and um, almost destroyed their trade. So this was a very big deal. So Captain Kidd sets off like a major first kind of live documented manhunt. And his trial is a big show trial. Um, it's published verbatim. And he was had a very public execution in Wapping, which is in East London on the banks of the Thames at Execution Dock. So this was a, one of the first real show trials for a pirate. Now, some of the real infamous pirates that we know of from the Golden Age, the third round, we have, of course, Blackbeard, um, who was probably born as Edward Teach. Sometimes you see the name as Thatch, depending on the documents. He was from Bristol, most likely came from a middle-class family. He was educated. And he was initially a privateer sailing under uh, Benjamin Hornigold during the War of Spanish Succession. Benjamin Hornigold later became known as the Pirate King because he established Nassau as a pirate city. Blackbeard is kind of his protege, and he ends up sailing on a ship called the Queen Anne's Revenge for about two years, 17, 17, 17, 18, until he is decapitated in battle um, off the coast of, I believe, Virginia. So he was very famous for that, mostly the way he looked, the way he acted, the long black beard, the smoke coming out of his beard, Um, really kind of elaborate fighting, beheaded in battle. But what's funny is he wasn't actually that successful. He didn't become very wealthy. So that's quite interesting. Mm. Then you have Charles Vane, who was known for his violence in the Caribbean. He was one of the pirates who was known to capture and torture his victims um, until he was finally captured and executed in 1721. Now, one of his um, crewmates, I believe... High-ranking officer, first mate or something like that, is Jack Rackham. He marries the infamous female pirate Anne Bonny, who becomes kind of, you know, one of the head honchos on his ship. And there's another woman on board named Mary Reed. So they're two very famous pirate women who sail with them. And so this is why he becomes very famous in a way. Um, He's known as Calico Jack because he wears very fine, expensive clothing. This is a way he distinguishes himself. They only sail for three months from August until about 
October of 1720, before they're captured. Jack Rackham and his men hide below deck as they're attacked, leaving just Anne Bonny and Mary Reed fighting by themselves against their captors um, until they're all put on trial. Jack Rackham is executed at Gallows Point in Jamaica in November 1720. Anne Bonny and Mary Reed are both sentenced to be to, to hang. But plot twist, they're pregnant, so they get what's called a stay of execution, which is where if a woman's going to be executed, they put it off until after she gives birth. For the most part, they would never actually carry out the sentence in that case. Mary Reed, unfortunately, dies of what's called jail fever, which is probably typhus and possibly complications from pregnancy or childbirth in about March 1721. We don't know what happened to Anne Bonny because there's no death record of her. So two theories are that she either went home back to the Carolinas and lived until the 1780s and had her child there. Recently, a YouTuber, um, I forget his name, kind of discovered a document that had Anne Bonny's name uh, saying that she was buried in St. Catherine's Parish in Jamaica in 1733, suggesting that she lived the next 12 years of her life in Jamaica before mm-hmm. passing away somehow. So they're quite famous. Um, I said Benjamin Hornigold. Mm-hmm. You've got other pirates. Um, Henry Jennings was quite a, quite an infamous pirate who commanded a a very powerful fleet. Bartholomew Roberts is probably the most successful pirate of the age. He commanded fleets of over 100 ships, and in today's currency, he would have made billions of dollars or pounds. So he was one of the most successful pirates in history. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Generally, I believe that From what I understand, a lot of pirates of color, not always, but a lot of pirates of color would get more lower positions on ships. But the difference is they were allowed onto pirate ships, whereas many people for other ships, they wouldn't have been. So a pirate ship was kind of a place for a lot of marginalized people to go because on a pirate ship, what really mattered was being able to fight and, you know, be willing, being okay with dying in battle. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details.
taking us back to life for the more general pirate, I suppose, um, we've got a couple more questions about life on uh, one of these sloops. Um, so PJ Wilson has asked on Facebook, uh, he'd love to know more about the health and illness among pirates, what ailments were and how they thought they could cure them. What's known about that sort of thing? So yeah, um, pirate ships and pretty much all other ships ran into similar ailments. So one of the number one threats was scurvy, which is a lack of vitamin C. So one of the ways they kind of combated this, now they didn't really know it caused scurvy, but um, they kind of had the instinct of knowing how to keep themselves from getting scurvy. And this, of course, is getting vitamin C. So pirates were generally actually known to be a bit more physically healthy than many other sailors on different ships because of how much they would rob ships and they were constantly replenishing their food stores. They also often sailed pretty close to lots of islands where they could replenish pretty easily. So they weren't sailing very long, drawn-out distances the way merchant ships were when they were crossing the, the entire ocean. So this kept them a bit physically healthier. But one of the things that they were known was having a drink called grog, which, um, you know, we hear about in pop culture, but it's real. And it was actually drunk a lot on pretty much any major ship anyways. What it is, if you'd like to make it, it's one part rum, four parts water, um, like a spoonful of brown sugar, and um, juice of a lime. So this was kind of a treat, but the lime kind of really helps uh, prevent scurvy from the vitamin C. So that's something. Another threat, of course, is malaria, particularly in the Caribbean. And at some point, they start um, drinking a tincture of what's called quinine, which comes from a plant, initially, I think, in South America, that also is cultivated well in the Caribbean. Of course, later, that becomes a key ingredient in tonic. And I know in the 19th century, with uh, Indian colonization, a lot of British colonists drank gin and tonics to prevent getting malaria. So that was another threat, was getting malaria. And then, of course, injuries from fighting. That was always very, very common. Um, You could get infections. You could very easily lose a limb or have to have something amputated. And another major threat, syphilis was huge. Pirates visited brothels, and syphilis ran rampant throughout everywhere, the American colonies and Europe in particular. In fact, Blackbeard, he blockaded a port uh, off, off South Carolina, Charleston Port, and it's believed it was to get medicine because he was really ravaged by syphilis, and so are several members of the crew. So they would treat syphilis by with mercury because mercury takes away the symptoms. Does it cure syphilis? No, actually it makes you sicker but because of mercury poisoning, but takes away the symptoms such as tremors and sores that break out, that sort of thing. What you do is you fill it with a very long syringe with a very long needle. You <laughs> inject it into the penis, and that is where you inject the mercury. Um, so that is how it was treated. So uh, syphilis, scurvy, malaria, and lots of various injuries and infection are were some of the main threats on a pirate ship. Wow, risky business. I think, yeah, I think the uh, the grog definitely sounds a prefer- preferable health preserver to the to the mercury. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and we've on that kind of intimate personal note, we've got uh, another question from um, Mikor on Twitter, who's asked: Is it true that same-sex relationships were not uncommon on pirate ships? That's such a good question, and it's really hard to answer because, as historians. You need it like, like we're like journalists. And when you have a claim, you need to have evidence to back it up. Otherwise, it's an assumption. And there are no records of actual 
um, same-sex relationships on pirates. It wasn't on pirate ships. It wasn't described anywhere or anything like that. That said, it doesn't mean it didn't exist because homosexuality has existed throughout human history, throughout in every single species on the entire planet um, since the beginning of time. So there is no reason to believe that same-sex relationships did not exist on a pirate ship. Now, there are some historians who believe that they didn't. There are some historians who believed it was rampant. I think it was probably similar to any population. But the reality is, it during the time, it was very socially unacceptable and in many cases illegal. In the maritime world, um, homosexual relationships, sodomy or buggery, as it was also caused, uh, called, very illegal, which could be subject to imprisonment or even execution in some cases. So if there was... Um, same-sex relationships, it would have been very much hidden. Now, there are some um, theories that pirates did practice something called, I'm probably going to butcher this, so I apologize for any French speakers, but um, matelotage. Um, I I can never pronounce it right, but that's, it comes from the word matelot uh, for French, and it has to do with the partnership. Essentially, what it is, is pirates sort of create kind of a legal union between one person and another, usually an older crew member and a younger crew member, to kind of create a bond of loyalty where if one of them died in battle, the other person would get there, would inherit their effects, essentially. And this created a a loyal bond as well. So some people believe, oh, it was like same-sex marriage. Maybe legally, in a sense. Maybe it was sexual. Maybe it wasn't. But we don't know. I personally believe, yeah, sure, because there's same-sex relationships everywhere. We just don't have any documentation. And this is where the debate is. So we can't say for sure. What we can do is make an educated guess and an assumption that there might have been. Yeah, of course, that, that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, right, so where, where do we go next? We've still got so many great questions to get through. Um, Oh, okay. So I think this is a really interesting question, given you've spoken about the geography of of where pirates kind of congregated. Um, We've got a couple of questions here about the uh, demographics, I suppose, of the crude. Um, Lily the Go from Instagram has asked, how multinational were pirate crews? Uh, And Daniel O'Donnell, Facebook, has asked, how were ethnic minorities treated on pirate ships? Great question. So pirate ships were quite multinational. They were quite diverse. So um, about... In the Atlantic world, this golden age of piracy, about 50% of pirate crews were um, white, British, or American colonists. So about half. The other half, very much kind of a mixture. You had, um, now the majority were white, but a mixture of different uh, countries. So you had French pirates, Spanish pirates, Portuguese pirates. Um, Sometimes you would get East Indian pirates. You would sometimes even get um, uh, Southeast Asian pirates on ships, that was quite, that was a bit more rare, particularly in the Atlantic, but it wasn't unheard of. You would get sometimes Native American pirates, and of course, you would have African pirates or um, black pirates, essentially, many of whom were likely either escaped enslaved people or perhaps freed enslaved people who couldn't get work elsewhere or perhaps were enslaved people who had been captured and forced into the pirate crew. Now, how were ethnographic minorities treated on pirate ships? We don't quite know, but in terms of black pirates who generally, for the most part, like I said, were either freed enslaved people or had been enslaved people, um, 
they were often given more lower positions on pirate ships, oftentimes in the kitchens or that sort of thing. Um, that could either be because of skill set, it could be because of prejudice or racism. There were some um, black pirates that were treated horribly because they were essentially captured from slave ships and they were might eventually be sold as slaves in other colonies, being considered cargo. Many pi- the pi- but most pirates didn't actually really engage in the slave trade like that. They would kind of absorb, if they uh, captured a slave ship, they would often kind of absorb many into the crew. Particularly Blackbeard was known for, I think, taking on as many as 14 enslaved people onto a ship and making them members of the crew. But I believe eventually he did end up selling several of them. So it really kind of depended. Um, generally, I believe that from what I understand, a lot of pirates of color, not always, but a lot of pirates of color would get more lower positions on ships. But the difference is they were allowed onto pirate ships, whereas many people um, for other ships, they wouldn't have been. So a pirate ship was kind of a place for a lot of marginalized people to go because on a pirate ship, what really mattered was being able to fight and you know, be willing, being okay with dying in battle. You would also get religious minorities or religious persecuted people, Catholics in particular. Sometimes you get Jews. There were bands of Jewish pirates. Um, So there were, yeah, pirate ships were really multicultural. That's so interesting. And and thank you so much for those those questions on on that one. Great, great questions there. Um, Taking us back a bit in the timeline, uh, I think this might come out a bit out of the blue, but Mike Metcalf on Instagram has asked, what was the role of Elizabeth I? I imagine this probably should have, I should have put this one to you when we were talking more about (laughs) privateers and things, but perhaps we could talk a little bit about royal royal involvement or sponsorship. Uh, Elizabeth I did have some involvement with piracy. There have been some who referred to her as a pirate queen. I think that's a bit of a stretch personally. But she did work with um, an Irish pirate queen uh, known as Grace O'Malley, um, who commanded a large fleet of ships in Ireland until her sons were captured and taken hostage. She goes to appeal to Queen Elizabeth and kind of in return, Grace O'Malley has to kind of start working as a privateer for Elizabeth. Um, And the two of them end up having a pretty cordial relationship. Um, Queen Elizabeth also, you know, sponsored... Sir Walter Raleigh quite a bit, who fought for her as a privateer, particularly against the Spanish during the Spanish Armada. So she did sponsor a lot of privateers, particularly fighting with the Spanish. Other than that, though, I actually am not quite sure no, that's, that's <laughs> of her relationship. But she sponsored a lot of privateers, um, especially fighting against the Spanish. Great. Um, so you mentioned Grace O'Malley there, and, and you mentioned Anne Bonny before as well. But uh, perhaps it's just worth um, revisiting the, the role of women in piracy, because we've had a couple of mm-hmm. questions on, on this subject. I think people are really fascinated with with how prevalent was it in this world to find women on pirate ships, and even were they in command? So women on pirate women in piracy, that is a really fascinating subject because it's a mystery in a lot of ways. So, But where were women who did command pirate ships? kind of throughout history. You had, uh, you know, powerful women in ancient Greece who commanded ships against Persian enemies and other particular um, competing states, such as an Illyrian 
a pirate queen who fought against a lot of Greek ships. You go um, a thousand years later, you have um, uh, someone named Alwida, a Scandinavian woman who, according to legend, became head of a pirate ship as she was trying to escape an arranged marriage that she didn't want until she was eventually kidnapped by her fiancé and forced to Denmark with him. But she had supposedly commanded a pirate ship when she was captured by pirates. They needed a new captain and found her to be quite a natural leader, so they appointed her to be head. You had um, Saida Alhura, in, uh, who was from Morocco. She was actually from Spain. And her family, they were kicked out of Spain for being Muslim, essentially, because it was kind of around the time of the Spanish Inquisition. She's forced to Morocco and kind of makes it her life's mission to wreak any sort of revenge onto the Spanish as much as possible. And she ends up marrying a very powerful figure. And from there, she is kind of in charge of a lot of fleets, of ships. I don't know if she actually sailed with them. I think she did a few times, but she kind of commanded these ships to fight against the Spanish. And then, of course, you have Grace O'Malley, who, who came from a long lineage of powerful maritime Irish chieftains on, on off the west coast of Ireland. And she herself became known as a very powerful pirate queen. And then, of course, we have Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who are probably two of the most infamous female pirates ever to live. They didn't captain the ships, but they did have very prominent roles. They took control in a lot of fighting. They were known to be some of the most fiercest of the fighters, cursing and swearing and brandishing their weapons. They would fight with their shirts open, um, so half naked, really kind of freaking out their victims. You had other... um, other women who who sailed in the later 1700s, there was an American woman, I forget her name, Rachel Well, I want to say, but I could be wrong, um, who fought as a pirate in the late 1700s. And then most famously, you have Madame Chang or Cheng Shi in 19th century China, who commanded a fleet of over a thousand. She was so powerful that the British government paid her to retire. And she eventually did take the money and she opened up a series of brothels. But she's quite fascinating because she let women onto the ship and she had very strict rules against violence towards women. If a man was had made even just an unwanted advance towards a woman, he could get thrown overboard. So she was very strict about that. Now, that said, there probably were more women than we know. A lot of women um, were known to, you know, disguise themselves as men and go into the army or the navy or merchant ships and probably pirate ships. So they would disguise themselves as men and this is how they would often find work on a ship. We just don't know the number because, again, it's not documented. But since we do know of many cases of women disguising themselves or even working openly as men in the Royal Navy, such as Hannah Snell in the later 1700s, we can therefore, again, make the educated guess that there were probably a lot more women than we know of. Women did sail on ships. There's this misconception that they said women were unlucky on ships. There is maritime lore and superstition of mermaids and sirens, female maritime mythological figures who would lure sailors into the ocean and drown them or try to seduce them and drown them. The reality is a lot of ships didn't allow women because they felt that women just might not be up to either the mental and physical work that it took on a ship or it could cause a lot of social complications and jealousy. But the reality is a lot of captains or high-ranking officers would bring their wives. Sometimes women were let on ships to do work such as you know, in the kitchens, mending, nursing, that sort of thing. So there were women who did have their place on ships. They were just very much the minority. Mm -hmm. 
this is this is so interesting and and i i hate to skip on really from life life at sea and all of these fascinating figures um but i think we'll i'll sadly ask um how did this age sort of start wrapping up how how did it um kind of come to an end when does the golden age of piracy start slowing down it starts slowing down in the late 1720s um like Marcus Redeker argues that the Golden Age of Piracy ended in 1726 when the pirate William Fly was executed because that was the last real public spectacle execution of a pirate. So piracy, particularly in the 1800s during that third round of the Golden Age of Piracy, there had been what was called a war on pirates declared on the pirates after the Spanish-American War. And I believe up to to 4,000 pirates may have been executed in just a decade from about 1713 until about 1723-25. So why does piracy start to wrap up? It's a few reasons. A lot of the big pirate leaders of pirate ships were executed or had kind of just disappeared or retired, such as Benjamin Hornigold, Bartholomew Roberts, Blackbeard, Jack Rackham, Charles Vane. Um, A lot of them had been executed The Royal Navy had really beefed up its presence. Woods Rogers had taken really good control over the Bahamas and was expelling pirates left and right from an area where they had congregated for so long. And also, a lot of pirates began to feel like it just wasn't really worth it. And then more difficulties began breaking out between European countries, eventually culminating into the War of Austrian Succession, going into the War of Jenkins' Ear. And a lot of these European nations, they needed skilled sailors who were able to fight. And so many pirates were offered pardons, um, saying, "We, you won't be tried as a criminal, we'll let you go if you fight for us as privateers. And a lot of pirates actively chose to do this because it just wasn't worth the risk of being a pirate anymore around 1730-ish. So it's a clearly a very brutal history. As you've mentioned, there's plenty of violence, plenty of risk involved. And we've got a great, great question here from Clerical Badger on Twitter. Great name. Um, when when, and why did pirates stop being seen as violent criminals in the popular imagination and start being seen as romantic heroes and figures of fun? Um, and if I can tag one onto that as well, they've also asked, is it problematic that we've largely airbrushed the piracy out of piracy? Yeah, I love these questions. Um, and these are questions that actually that kind of started my own research in piracy when I was a young and innocent master's student. So what's so interesting is that piracy has always been a source of fascination because, you know, there are these figures that kind of cast off any allegiance to their country and they take control of their own lives in a lot of ways. Um, in the 1600s, 1700s, they were able to kind of defy a lot of class restrictions You know, they were able to, they were poor people for the most part, or maybe middle class, that were able to become wealthy on their own, which was very unusual during that time period. If you were born working class, you'd stay working class. But here were pirates that kind of did something else. And then they sailed in exotic locations. People read about them. They'd flock to their public executions. So there always was kind of this morbid fascination with pirates. Then you have the book, A General History of the Pirates, published in 1724 by Captain Charles Johnson. Some people believe Daniel Defoe may have written the book. I go with Captain Charles Johnson personally because there's no proof it was Daniel Defoe. Um, This is a collection of pirate biographies. It's um, over 700 pages, initially published in two volumes, and it was a bestseller. It's still in print. You can go online and buy a copy. Some bookstores might even have a copy. And 
it kind of told the stories of the most infamous pirates of the day. Many of their stories, though, were very heavily fictionalized. So I'm writing a book right now um, about the female pirates, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And it's been a really interesting process because everything we know about their early life comes from a general history of the pirates, but it's probably all fiction. So you have to kind of really sort of filter through fact from fiction. But people loved this book. And then, you know, Flash forward to the 1800s. You have a Scottish guy named Robert Louis Stevenson who starts writing um, a serial called The Sea Cook in um, a magazine weekly for a period of time um, between 1881 and, 18, or, and 1882, which gets put into eventually a book called Treasure Island. And much of that was very influenced by the general history of the pirates, which he uses a lot of, for reference. But this is where we get the idea of, you know, finding buried treasure. X marks the spot. Here's something else very disappointing. Pirates did not bury treasure. Uh, they had no reason to. They took goods to sell. I think there were only one or two cases where they actually got gold from Spanish ships, but that was super rare. They were stealing goods. Treasure in the 1700s just meant valuable. They wanted things like textiles, spices, medicines, alcohol to sell. So, but Robert Louis Stevenson, um, the whole plot that, that he comes up with is about an old treasure map, young boy Jim Hawkins, who is given this treasure map by the old sea dog who stays at his inn, Captain Flint, um, who is known to be a frightening pirate. And then he kind of goes on this ex expedition to find this pirate treasure, and he becomes friends with the cook, a man with a peg leg, and a parrot, and uh, an eye patch named Long John Silver, who of course is actually a pirate secretly staging a mutiny. Um, this is where we get this whole new idea about pirates, where he becomes kind of this fun anti-hero, adventure, treasure, wealth, riches, this guy with a peg leg and an eye patch. Um, very cool. That image was very much inspired by Robert Louis Stevenson's travels to America after the American Civil War, where many veterans were missing limbs and eyes and had eye patches. So he took that as kind of inspiration, rationalizing that many sailors would have similar injuries and applied this to Long John Silver. And so this is kind of where we get that idea. And then we get J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, a couple, you know, just a short time later with Captain Hook. And then eventually this, is, of course, is going to translate into ultimately Jack Sparrow from the Disney ride Pirates of the Caribbean turned into the film franchise. You know, Treasure Island was adapted numerous times, the most famous of which was the 1950s version starring Robert Newton playing Robert Louis Stevenson, who kind of created what we think of as the, the stereotypical pirate accent with R matey. Those phrases do come from Robert Louis Stevenson, but R Robert Newton, he applied his own accent. He's from Cornwall, um, from a maritime community in Cornwall. And he heavily, heavily, heavily exaggerated his own accent to a real bad stereotype. And that is what became the pirate accent. So that it really kind of comes from these books that get translated to film and screen and to what we have today. That's such an evolution. And I love the idea there's talk like a pirate day, isn't there? And the fact that people might be imitating this, this actor who made a dramatic decision. That's really brilliant. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. And we did have a question as well. Tommy Ronco on Instagram asked, uh, who, if anyone, is the character with the wooden leg and parrot on his shoulder based on? So I hope that answers your question there, Tommy. That's great. Yep. <laughs> um, and we have touched uh, upon Pirates of the Caribbean already with that question of parlay. But I'm guessing, again, Je Jess Dinning on Twitter has asked, how accurate is the representation? I guess it's as fictional as any of the others out there, I imagine. 
It's quite fictional, but I actually love the first Pirates of the Caribbean film. Not a fan of the others. Um, But I love the first one because they do take a lot of maritime superstition and lore and pirate details and apply it to the film in a fun way. So you have it taking place initially at Port Royal, which used to be a pirate stronghold, but you see the Royal Navy has taken over. Um, And then what I was really impressed with was how diverse the pirate crews were. If you want to see a really great representation of what a typical pirate crew looked like, watch Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Take a look at Jack Sparrow's crew. Take a look at Captain Barbosa's crew, and you'll see just how diverse it was. You have pirates of many, you know, people of color. You've got um, a woman on Jack Sparrow's pirate ship. Um, So that's a really good representation. And they do take in some of the maritime lore. You know, they do have the idea of a woman being bad luck, but in the movie, that's proven wrong. They're like, no, you're ridiculous for thinking so. (laughs) Um, In terms of finding treasure, of course, that's not a thing. But the whole um, curse with Barbosa's ship about how they were a cursed ship. Um, The idea of cursed ships or ghost ships did exist. It was maritime superstition. So I actually like a lot of what they did. Um, in terms of how they represented pirates. Another really good show is Black Sails, which um, was on from 2014, 2017. I think it's kind of had a neat sort of cult classic sort of or cult following resurgence since it's ended. Um, And that's kind of like a prequel to Treasure Island, but they base it a lot in really good fact. So that one's quite fun. Um, And it does a good job about sort of romanticizing pirates, but also showing the really brutal realities of pirates. Um, One of the questions before I didn't quite answer was, should we be romanticizing pirates? I mean, we romanticize everything, don't we? We romanticize, you know, Genghis Khan. We romanticize the Vikings. We romanticize, um, gosh, who else? We, You know, Jesse James and Highwaymen and, of course, pirates. We do that. Why, like, we've got, um, you know, these crime documentaries and crime shows that are so popular, crime, true crime podcasts. We've always romanticized everything like this. Pirates are no exception. So people say, oh, you shouldn't be romanticizing pirates. Well, in that case, we shouldn't be romanticizing anything else. Do I think pirates should be romanticized? I don't think any violent criminals should be romanticized because it takes away the fact that pirates were criminals. Many pirates were very violent and many could even be very deadly. That they weren't the, Deadly pirates weren't the majority, but pirates could be very, very violent. They, you know, often did destroy lots of livelihoods and families and everything like that. But if there's one interesting thing I think that comes from romanticization is curiosity about the subject, which I do think is always a good thing. Hopefully people become curious to learn more about pirates. Then, of course, you know, we get um, things like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, you know, a whole sports team that's named after pirates. Um, The historian Dr. Jamie Goodall wrote an article about, you know, how we shouldn't really quite romanticize that. And she got ripped apart for it in the comments of that article. But she had really great points. Like, we're romanticizing something that really shouldn't be romanticized. In that case, we're starting to forget what the realities were. I like Pirates of the Caribbean because you do have Jack Sparrow with principles and kind of being fun and everything like that. But you do have, like, Captain Barbosa and his crew who are so violent and frightening and destroy a whole city and everything like that. So... Like, should we romanticize pirates? We shouldn't romanticize any of those um, types of criminals, but we do. And if it raises interest in the history, that's something I'm all for, is get people curious to learn. (laughs) 
That was Dr. Rebecca Simon. She's the author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. That's published by Mango Press and is out now. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when we'll be discussing new discoveries around the CERN Abbas giant. <laughs>